Rewinding. Rewinding Kaya FM on FM Rewind. There's only one way to start the weekend. Saturdays with Jenny, 9 to 11 a.m. on Kaya FM 95.9. Andrew Harding is a foreign correspondent for the BBC. He's won an Emmy for his radio and television reports. He's the author of the acclaimed The Mayor of Mogadishu. I think it's sold incredibly well. And now comes his second absolutely extraordinary book. It's set in the farmlands around Paris and it's called These Are Not Gentle People. It's got a fabulous cover as well. Uh, to say, as I just did, that it is an extraordinary and revelatory book is an understatement. And um, and it's so nice to have you in the studio, Andrew, because mm. for seven months we haven't had a single guest. We don't even know what they look like anymore. Isn't it strange? I keep wanting to kind of switch the Zoom screen. You know? Yes. <laughs> there yes. you are, straight in front yes. of me. Yes, or, or not to be able to do the connection, mm. which is my which is my <laughs> sort of treat and whatever. And I was just I was just thinking back to when you first told me you were writing a book, and I thought that's exciting and uh, and you, as you know i love crime fiction and uh, and you said no it's okay it's it's about a murder or a murder or two or something like alleged something, murder pardon alleged murder alleged murder and anyway you were very careful about it and <laughs> uh, and whatever so when i got the book it was like it, 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 I have very few words that I'm able to use to describe what my thoughts are. So I would like you, you've got your book in front of you, <laughs> and it sums up for, for many, many Afropolitans listening to this what the story is, is about and somehow or other how it develops into a read that you cannot put down. I was breathless at times. I was absolutely breathless, really. Thank you. So this is chapter one, and this is the beginning of chapter one. They ran as a pack, 16 feet, pounding and scratching the hard earth, heading south with the low sun picking them out like a spotlight, dark silhouettes against the drought-bleached fields. The white woman saw them first. They're here, on the farm. They're crossing our land. She could see five figures, two men and three lanky dogs, perhaps a little over 200 metres away, their long shadows flickering, first against a water tank, then slowing and shrinking as the men ducked under a barbed wire fence. The woman stood near her small, run-down farmhouse, her back to the motorway and a mobile phone to her ear. She was a stout, straight-backed, unflappable woman, glad to see the end of this nonsense. On the phone, she told the others to head towards the clump of blue gums at the southern edge of the property. They could corner them there, and the rest would follow. Within minutes, she saw the dust from two cars begin to converge, and then, as the word spread, more cars and more clouds of dust turning pale orange in the fading light. So you know somehow that there are these three men um, running at night across the fields trying to get off the land. You know that there are cars and vehicles and buckies and whatever as the local farmers congregate to try and find out who's there because farm murders are a very real thing as we know and people feel um, very, very threatened in many ways. And what followed was just extraordinary. And I don't want to spoil it for Afropolitans, but let's just say it resulted um, in 
the most extraordinary story to come out because it reveals the bare bones of South Africa. And that's what I kept thinking. So you wrote it in a, in a way like a detective story. It was like a crime novel, but it was real and it is us. I was very lucky in that sense because I, I attached myself to this project for or so years ago and I had no way of knowing exactly where it would go and certainly the courtroom drama which I found just so gripping and so explosive and so remarkable um, was very lucky for me as a writer but yes I mean at the heart of this was this extraordinary moment that is both a mystery and and a horror story the the, the this brutal assault that takes place in the corner of this field and then all these different myriad perspectives on what happened and why what happened was it a, a simply an arrest gone wrong was it a, a brutal hazing was it a deliberate murder and so from the offset hopefully you have this sense of drama and this sense of mystery um, that ricochets and spreads out through this farming community and and into Tumahole, the township around Paris. So, so you are used to traversing Africa and coming up with stories on a regular basis. What on earth in the early days drew you to Paris and this particular courthouse and to all of the people who are involved? So the weird thing for me was that what attracted me initially also repelled me slightly and eventually receded from the story and it was the politics it was that sense that we see today in the newspapers of angry farmers of angry crowds demonstrating outside a courthouse of politics getting violently and bitterly involved in the judicial process something we know all too well here mm. of people saying We've got six farmers, white farmers, this was a race crime, they must go down for murder, they must be denied bail. Of a magistrate, an Indian magistrate in Paris saying, this is not Zimbabwe, I'm not going to succumb to political pressure, I'm going to do the right thing. And so when I sat in that magistrate's court in, in early in 2016 and I could see these pressures, on the one hand I thought, this is interesting, this is fascinating. On the other hand, I was also slightly put off because I, I thought this is going to be one of those stories that pulls to the extremes, to the sort of white genocide, right-winger narrative and to the kind of far-left perspective that all farmers are murderers, they're all brutal, they're all these white, horrific people out there killing black people. And of course... South Africa is a lot more complex mm. than that. And I didn't really want to write a story that was so black, black and white. And, white. Um, and I was lucky um, as I started to kind of get more and more gripped by the story that those political issues sort of started to fade away, not least as the months became years. The politicians disappeared, the rhetoric disappeared. And what I was left with was a story of this community this broken, divided community or communities trying to wrestle with the trauma that had engulfed them, had engulfed these families, this Van der Vesthuizen clan out on the commercial farms that was torn apart by this, this few hours of extraordinary brutality. And I was increasingly gripped and I was almost obsessed by trying to reconstruct the lives of the two men who died, two black farm workers whose stories and identities seem to be kind of airbrushed at best out of the judicial process. And I, I became 
you know, very interested in their families, in the stories that they were very keen to tell me, and in, you know, trying to access those those unseen perspectives. Because, you know, it's the same as a journalist. You, ultimately, really, you always want to be where the other journalists aren't. If you're in the crowd, you know, you know you're all doing the same version of the same story. You want to be somewhere where, as the journalists and the media and the politicians faded away from the the case in Paris, then I really got completely gripped by it because it was all mine. You see, it's almost Shakespearean, that tragedy. Um, so the tragedy of the mother, um, Ruth, um, who, I mean, my your heart cannot not go out to her. Uh, there is a pregnant girlfriend. There is um, the, the whole of the community, most of um, the the community living in the township were working on farms. So their lives were intertwined, but also they were separated. And I kept thinking of Drum Magazine at a certain stage. I thought of Drum Magazine and that that incredible um, art, series of articles by, I think it was, Gumalo, and, um, and, and looking at the conditions of workers on the farms. And my sense was that there hadn't been much change in the last 50 years. And certainly in terms of attitudes, almost no change at all. Mm, two different worlds. Yes. And particularly now because, of course, over the last few decades, as I understand it, most black farm workers no longer live on the farms mm. themselves. They have been pushed to these informal settlements mm. and townships and are brought in by the day. And so you have this sense of profound distrust and anger from both sides and yet these people are, are working side by side all year round I mean there's, there's a scene right at the beginning of the book where you've got a domestic worker and uh, she is she's reasonably well paid um, she's reasonably happy she's you know got you know got a family and uh, and all of that and I think it is the Funder Vestesen family isn't it it's yes one of one the, of the extended family one farms. of them and um, and she hears about this um, a killing or attack um, she hears about it on the radio and her employer is hearing it and comes they both the husband and wife come and stand in front of her and say we're so sorry we're so sorry and um, whatever and she doesn't really she can't take it in that it is her son was was one of the people who was attacked the night before in a in a brutal hunt it was a moment i really focused on early in the book because in in kind of trying to work out what was going out going on in in this story i realized that you have two entirely different perspectives on exactly the same incident in other words the discovery that samuel chicha is one of the farm workers and has died and the process by which his mother Ruth Kokota finds out mm. and the process by which the white farming community and her employers try to kind of explain it to her from Ruth's perspective she sees this as as a, a terrible abuse of trust that the the white farmers that she worked for knew something and they'd not told her whereas the white farmers are going this is all very complicated it could be gossip it could be rumor we don't want to spread it until we know for sure and suddenly this boils down to this horrific moment when a mother learns of her son's death and you have these totally 
worlds apart perspectives on the same moment and and it was felt very cinematic to me in that you're seeing these two worlds sort of colliding and neither side really feeling they're in the wrong both sides coming at it from a from their own culture and their own perspective and yet they're just worlds away mm. they're worlds away in in understanding and of course the political intervention um from from the hawks from uh, uh, from the EFF it it for me it was just so cynical so once you got over the tragedy and uh, and the burial of the two men most people didn't know their surnames anyway and there they're buried as you 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 go back to where they were buried towards the end of the book and there's just this hillside full of dead bodies and you can't even find their graves because you know the sun has uh, sun and the rain has washed bits and pieces away and things like that and just the just the the folly of the whole thing and the tragedy of it because ruth is 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 doomed um she's just doomed to a life of sorrow and finally alcohol and she's a remarkable woman and that's where i was very lucky again uh in in researching this story um and why i ended up focusing particularly on her and her son um is that she is um clearly very intelligent, very articulate, very interesting, very light-hearted, um, wonderful woman uh, who opened up to me and wanted me to tell her son's story. A, a woman who, had she not been brought up under apartheid and not been the youngest daughter of many siblings and had been denied school, somebody who you could imagine having an entirely different life. But she had this profound understanding of of her own tragedy and a, a sort of, as you say, almost Shakespearean understanding of the comedy and the tragedy in that. I didn't see too much um, comedy uh, in it at all. We're going to take a short break. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Kai FM and we're talking to BBC correspondent Andrew Harding about his book, These Are Not Gentle People. And if you are riveted, your feelings are identical to mine as I work my way slowly through this book. Saturdays with Jenny. Welcome back and welcome back to Saturdays with Jenny. So we're coming towards the end of our conversation with Andrew Harding. But what I want you guys to understand, you will read this and you will um, you will understand the tragedy that we are talking about. You will understand the pathos that we are talking about. You will understand the pointlessness of this from one side and from the other side, because it's been a very skillful, skillfully written book. But Andrew, right at the very beginning of the book, you do a cast of characters and there are lots of people on the farms from the Fundervestesens to uh, their neighbours Anton Logrenberg, his wife Gusta um, in the township Samuel Gisa, his mother Ruth who we've been speaking about uh, in town Captain Hendrik Prinsluer um, the Dumini in court the, the poor magistrate Leshni Pillay and I understand she's left left the um uh, being a magistrate after this this horror and the amount of work that you took over a period of how many years was it to four bring this book to fruition four and a half 
So, so you you sometimes. I, I mean, at one stage, I put the I put the book down. I went to make myself a coffee, and I thought, I just I've got to have a break from this, uh, because it is so overwhelming. And and then I, as I was making the coffee and pouring it into a mug, I was thinking. You go into such detail that I think that you can you can remember the necklace that Ruth was wearing when she first went to court and sat quietly at the back of the court, absolutely unnoticed by everybody except a friend. Um, it, it, you you went into such profound detail that it, it, it's overwhelming what you managed to do, actually, in such a short period of time. Well, it felt like a long period. No, of time. I'm sure I mean, it did. as a journalist. So often air dropped into situations, conflicts, wars around, wherever. It was an enormous indulgence and privilege just to be able to sit and watch and talk and, and take notes um, and, and conduct these very long, long interviews going over years and years. Um, it, you know, it, it's, it's a luxury that we don't often get in, in my trade and... Uh, yeah, I, I certainly got very, very drawn into the stories and the lives of of the people who let me into their lives. And of course, and not all of them did. But no, of course. And uh, and I mean, it was very, very significant to me that you were the outsider. So standing outside the court, uh, you would have the farmers and uh, and you know their advocates and and whatever and then and then the two groups of farmers then the two once groups they're divided of farmers, yes. yes exactly and then you would have um you would have people from the township you would have the law you would have the hawks you would have everybody so you were an outsider which i think is the strength of this book that you had no access to grind or or anything like that at all um, but it's just the detail and the amount of time and the observations you had of what for many people is a pretty little town of Paris. Um, but when you get to the underbelly, it's just the South African tragedy. Well, it's a mixture. I mean, it is still a pretty little town and there are lots of great people and, you know, some things are improving there. It, it is, I mean, it's a cliche to say it's a microcosm of South Africa. Any small town could be. Uh, there's a lot going right, there's a lot going wrong there. And I don't pretend that this case, I mean, it's a murder case, it's not going to be cheerful and it's not going to show South Africa at its best. But I think if you do dig hard enough into the undergrowth, you do get a sort of visceral sense, certainly of what's going wrong here at an institutional level, from the forensics, the hawks, the prosecution, just the structural challenges and rot that South Africa is facing. As well, you know, at, at the bigger picture, you can say, well, there was a trial. Justice was seen to be done. Is it what the community will see as justice being done? Well, that's complicated. And that's part of the divisions now, the, these politically you know, antagonistic divisions that are being exploited here, but are also very real and, and very worrying. Uh, in incredibly worrying, but also, uh, again, because I was just a reader, and I was reading slowly, by the way, so I wasn't rushing through this book because it was it was mesmerising um, and disturbing. And I'm glad it happened during lockdown, where I had the time to you know to to devote to it. But uh, right towards the end, um, when you begin summing up something or other, I just the thought that. The pregnant girlfriend who must have had a child, um, still living in a shack, uh, still without a job. There's just nothing. What is going to help 
people living in extreme poverty to get out of that poverty? What is going to help them? It needs some kind of intervention, which I think you hint at. You need, you need a hand, don't you? <laughs> you want me to solve South Africa's problems? Well, I, like, I, I'm not, but as a, um, as a No, I mean, just in, in terms of, you know, out on the farms, I mean, one thing is that clearly, you know, black farm workers need to be given a sense of a future and a role beyond being hired labor on these farms and how you get people, how you break those divisions and and make it clear that the workforce has an interest in safeguarding and protecting the farms, the people on the farms. And I mean, I did see on the outskirts of Paris, you see small holdings, black farmers desperate to, be, to become commercial farmers, getting their foot on the ground, in the door. But you also see these giant white elephant failed farm projects that, of course, have all been community-based, mm. collectives, um, and they don't work in the farming system. You need to get the individual attached to his land, and you need to support those, those people who've shown their determination. Um, but it's very difficult when you have bureaucracies, local municipalities changing every year, when you have such institutional battles and lack of capacity. Mm. So so you you were telling me that there's not only an audio version of this but there's also a podcast series. So but you've got to you've got to be able to get BBC4. Am I right? No, 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 no. no. Uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to plug. <laughs> uh, so if you go to BBC Sounds or wherever you get your podcasts from, um, we have done a, a five-part series version of this story with interviews, um, with recreations of the sort of the scenes and the story. Um, it's a slimmed down version of the story, but it's called Bloodlands. And if you look for Bloodlands on BBC Sounds, uh, you will hopefully find it. Well, I think the audible version will be will be really, really interesting as well, especially for people who are rushing around and don't have time to read. But it's a form of reading, I think, because it's just in your ears and whatever. I think you've written an astonishing and absolutely memorable book. And if there was such a thing as the Sunday Times Book Awards, which didn't happen this year, this book would, for me, uh, be a huge contender for the Alan Payton Award. And I hope for international awards as well, Andrew. Thank you very much. Jenny. Thank you That's so very much. Very kind of you. So let me give you the details, the title of the book, and it's described by Reedy Flabby as a gripping and painful read, told with empathy and nuance. These are not gentle people is an uncomfortable reminder that the past is not over. And it is a true story, and it is called These Are Not Gentle People, published by Picador Africa, and it is memorable on every single level. Saturdays with Jenny. With Jenny, every Saturday from, from 9 to 11 a.m. On Kaya FM 95.9. Rewinding. Rewinding Kaya FM on FM Rewind. Visit kayafm.co.za for more.